Jesus, once again, we come here because, not because um, there's something holy about this place, but because there's something holy about you, and we come to this place to focus on you. We come from every conceivable way, and you've chosen to bring our paths to intersect in this moment. So as we stand at a crossroads choosing how to follow you, how we will journey together, may we take these written words and see you the living word. May our hearts be brought into union with your heart. And may we see the path before us and what we are called to do and to be who we are called to serve and to love, chasten and correct, encourage and celebrate. We pray this by your Holy Spirit, brought in the name of Jesus, to God the Father. Amen. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14. Over the past uh, 34 weeks, we have been going through the book of John, actually more than that because we took a break out for, for Advent, but for the past, we've been, um, really since last spring, we've been going through the book of John, and we are now encountering the meat of John. Um, if you were to graph out the sayings of Jesus in the, the Gospel of John, what you would see is that it starts out with him saying very little. And then slowly over, over the course of the book, we get more and more from Jesus, more and more that he, he is speaking directly to, um, mostly to his disciples, but also to others. And we've, we've addressed several of his discourses as he's uh, dealt with questions and dealt with uh, opposition. But here we get to what we call, and I've already mentioned this, we call the great discourse. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples Judas Iscariot, the great betrayer, the great traitor, has left. Jesus has told him, whatever you're going to do, do it now. Um, he's left the, the, the room. They've finished with their observances. They're done with dinner. Jesus is just talking to his disciples. And he's delivering to them, basically, this, this one final message. Now, I, I kind of am not entirely sure where and when this happens. I kind of think that he's... He starts in the upper room as they're finishing up and cleaning up um, after the meal that they've had, and then it kind of continues on their their walk um, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where Jesus is headed uh, to pray. But beginning in chapter 14, in verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now those are commands, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are um, many, and if you have an old King James Bible, this says many mansions. Um, that word has been massively uh, misinterpreted um, by, by Christians because when the King James Bible was translated, mansion just meant house. It did not mean, you know, mansion, um, what we mean now. However, you may also have a Bible that says many rooms. And I would also say that's probably not right either. The word is actually dwelling places. 
All right, it is the idea of a house being the father's house or basically a, a living complex and there are many people living there in their own living spaces, their own homes. That's really what that means. But anyway, in my father's house, there are many rooms, many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And we're going to get his disciples are going to start asking him questions. What I want you to do this morning as you're listening to this, this discourse, I want you to put yourself in a different frame of mind than we usually operate in. Uh, we usually operate, when we read the scriptures, we talk about the scriptures as back then, um, sometimes talking about back then, and sometimes talking about sometime when. What I want you to do is try to understand the way that Jesus tends to talk. And Jesus tends to talk in what I call the present future. Now what does that mean? How many of you loved learning verb tenses in English class? How many of you have ever even heard of something called the pluperfect? Don't ask me what it means. I still don't know. And I read three languages. Uh, verb tenses are very confusing, right? Especially in ancient languages. In ancient Hebrew, there are only two verb tenses. The imperfect and the perfect. It's either being done or is already done. But... When you tell a story, you invert them. That's not confusing at all. Um, and there's all kinds of different nuances and functions, it's things. But when Jesus talks, he talks in what I call the present future. Jesus looks at what the disciples are going through, or going to go through, and live in the present, and he asks them, to see themselves not as what they are, but what he sees them as becoming. So he asks them to do an extraordinarily hard thing. To see themselves not just as the broken, struggling disciples who are faced with the fact that Jesus is going to leave them behind, but to see themselves in the future of what God is doing with them. Now, that sounds really easy to say. It is really hard to live. And the disciples really face this. Um, and thankfully, we have John recording a couple of them asking questions. For once, it's not Simon Peter asking a question. Usually, they're nudging Peter, saying, go ahead. And I have a feeling, I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that um, the two that asked questions, Philip and Thomas, I think they tried to get Peter to do it, but if you've read chapters 12 and 13, Peter's already stepped up enough. He says, you've got a question. These, by the way, are two more of Peter's cousins. Um, and so they say to Peter, hey, you're gonna, he's like, you've got a question, ask him yourself. I'm tired of being your question guy. I'm going to just sit back here and deal with the fact he just told me I'm going to deny him. I'm not asking any more questions. Things are going to get worse. So Jesus starts this discourse. He says, he opens with this phrase, don't let your hearts be troubled. 
I think that Jesus opens with this phrase because I think it's important that we understand that our heart location, where our hearts are, determines our perspective on what we feel as we go through life. If my heart is so focused on the past, and I won't ask, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands or anything like that, but in our human experience, some people have had heartbreaks so tremendous, so enormous, so life-changing that their heart got left back there. Something happened and it was so bad that their heart was so broken that although they've gone forward in life, their heart location is back there. Now some people had such an absolutely great life up to a certain point that they live to relive the good experiences of the past. Right? These people, there are people that live in nostalgia. Um, nostalgia means to return to our old home. There are people that long for, for that, that, that idyllic life. Um, and of course, ironically, generally, if you actually start digging into their, their beautiful, amazing, awesome past, it wasn't nearly as good as they remember it. I know that we never, ever change our memories, but um, our heart location will determine our perspective. Those who have had a tremendous heartbreak in a relationship with a, with a significant other, they are so guarded in their relationships. If they have not shifted their heart location from that heartbreak um, to their current state or their future hope, if that heart stays back there, every relationship they have is protected. They're afraid of what's going to happen. Um, I've talked about this before, but um, when, when we came here, um, the church that was here, Grace Baptist Church, um, we brought a, a congregation I had been pastoring down to join with Grace Baptist and form what became Bedford Road. When we came down, um, we were very, very much aware that we were stepping into a situation where there was a lot of hurt. There was a lot of pain. There had been a lot of pastors and leaders and situations that had caused uh, people to be kind of gun-shy. To kind of to kind of flinch and act in reaction rather than really think what was going on. Um, I, I'm reminded of my my father. Uh, my father has been shot more times than most people, um, because most people have never been shot. Uh, my father has been shot twice. He was shot when he was 18 by his best friend who just wanted to see what it was like to shoot someone. Uh, with a 22 rimfire hunting rifle, the bullet is still lodged a couple inches from his lung. He almost died. And I've told this story about my family. My last name is DeVitro, and much of my family belongs to a sort of family that you think somebody named DeVitro would belong to. And there were a couple of situations of great uncles looking to arrange an accident um, for that young man. Anyway, then in 2004, my father had this brilliant idea to go with a group of guys to help start a church. Now keep in mind, this is 2004 in Iraq. 
and my father got shot. His friend was killed in the, in the bus, the, the van that they were in, was sitting in the front seat, pastor in Rhode Island, uh, was killed. My father has shrapnel in his arms and the back of his neck that every once in a while works out. And it was so weird in those first couple of years, he would be like itching something and he would flick a piece of AK-4762 round out of his arm. That's weird. Um, and my, my dad could tell you the whole story. You can look it up online. You, you'll see it. Just Google DeVitro in Iraq. Um, you have never seen a man react to fireworks like my dad does. The scars in his mind, if, even when he knows it's coming, my grandfather's funeral, my grandfather was a veteran, um, and so when, uh, when he was buried, my, my mom's stepdad, when he was buried, they came to do the, the salute with the guns. And I stood next to my dad and said, they're going to fire the weapons. They're going to fire the weapons. I know, I know, I know, I know. And you could still physically see him flinch every time it happened. Now, some people have that going on, that, that effect is in his mind, but some people have that in their heart. Their heart location is back in some traumatic period and they, they flinch. They spiritually flinch. And we, we saw that um, in the merger of our church, our congregation. There were situations that would trigger responses that were not based on what was happening at the moment. They were based on what had happened in the past. And the hardest part of being the pastor of that transition, and I remember Leo Goopel and I driving uh, home one time from a visit to this facility, and Leo saying to me, you are going to have to become a different pastor than you have been in order to minister in this situation. And, and having to be careful and cautious, because as you guys know, those of you that know me, I am super empathetic. I am so sensitive to people's feelings. I know all that stuff. I am, I am completely oblivious to this kind of stuff. And so being sensitive and, and watching and trying to see and, and knowing, okay, this might affect somebody and this might affect... And being willing to, to not just avoid the situation, but minister so that hearts could heal, so that people could go forward... So their heart location would shift from the past to what God was going to do. To, the, to move beyond where, the trap. Jesus talks to his disciples and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled about what's about to happen. He, he tells them, he says, you, you've got to believe me. I'm going to leave but I'm going to prepare a place for you and then I'm going to come back and you will be with you, with me. You've got to shift your heart location from the trauma you're about to experience. You've got to prepare your heart. What's about to happen is going to be massive. It's going to be tragic. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to endure it and you've got to put your heart into the present future. You've got to get some perspective on what's about to happen, and I'm asking you, and understand Jesus is asking them to do a hard thing. I'm asking you to trust me for the future that is coming.
Now, on the flip side, there are some folks that take their heart location question and they push their heart location so far into the pie and the sky and the great by and by that they are completely useless in the present. I just can't wait to be with Jesus. I'm not doing anything that might jeopardize that. Would you be willing to help out in a ministry? I don't know if I'm gifted for that. I'm just going to wait for Jesus. I grew up in southern churches. I know how people talk. Uh, You're all like, well, I thought he was from New Hampshire. Um, you, You can be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. We put our heart in the in the future, in the in the we put our heart location in what God is doing, trusting Christ, but our feet location has to be here. And that's what Jesus deals with in the next one. As he's he gets the first question. All right, the first question in verse five. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. Those three things are not separate things. They're one thing. The way, the truth, and the life. They are all the same thing. All right? Um, No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. All right? From now on, you do know me, and you have seen me. So Jesus says, your heart location, your trust needs to be in me. But you've still got a way to walk. And I'm going to clear the path for you. I'm going to show you the path. And I'm going to show you the way. It's a true way. It's a living way. It's the way that I'm going to move you to. But it's a hard way. It's a hard way. He says, you're going to have to know me so well that when culture comes and tells you that this is the right thing, the best thing, the good thing, this is the definition of what it means to be a good person, you're going to have to look at me, Jesus says, you're going to have to look at me, and you're going to have to look at that model of a good person that culture tells you, and you're going to have to know me so well that you can know those two things are not compatible and walk my way when all the other ways that call you are so much more attractive, so much more alluring, so much more powerful is the dark side more powerful Lord Obi-Wan or Master Obi-Wan you know again Star Wars reference sorry those of you that didn't see it alright it's more seductive it's more power we, we have to not only we have to not only take our heart and put our heart to Jesus and put our heart location in Jesus' priorities but we've got to get our eyes on the right way that we need to walk. And we've got to be able to see the direction that we're going to put our feet in the right place to follow. He says, if you know me, right? If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know me and have seen him. Jesus says, know me. Not Eric, not the elders, not Bedford Road, know me. He says, you're going to have to know me. Well, how, how well do I have to know Jesus to follow in him? Always better than you know him right now. 
This is a constant journey. We talk about creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. That journey together is all of us following Jesus. It's not come to Bedford Road, get saved, converted, religiized, whatever word you want to use, and then you'll be all set. Every single one of us has to know Jesus better tomorrow than we know him today. We have to get in the path because the the path we walk tomorrow is not the path we walk today. We've already walked today. Now we've got to walk tomorrow. We've got to keep that path in front of us. How many of you hike? How many of you have ever hiked with somebody that only looks at their own feet? Have you ever done this? This is incredibly frustrating. All right. Um, uh, the advent of GPS, um, I started hiking before GPS was a thing, before they had put the satellites up. So you had to actually look at the map, and you had to look at the marks along the trail. Now you hike with people. It is so infuriating. I see people hiking like this. I'm like, you are in the White Mountains There are trees all over the place. You're going to hit some beautiful views. You can't wait for your watch to notify you that nature is there. You you get your path, know your path, and walk. Walk with your eyes up so you know where the path is going. My friend Greg and I, one time we were trying to get one of the last, uh, number 47 of the 48 4,000 footers. We're hiking, and we missed the summit of a mountain because, honestly, it wasn't that exciting. And we went right over top of it, and we're walking along, and I said to Greg, I was like, I feel like we're going down. He said, maybe we should turn back. And we had to turn back, and then we had to look for the marker, because we weren't keeping our eyes open. We were having a conversation about something interesting. I don't know what it was. And we had missed what we were supposed to be looking for. When you're walking, you've got to have your eyes up. Jesus says, you've got to know me. And then in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. What a dumb question. Jesus just said, know me, and you will know the Father. And Philip says, well, show us the Father, and that's enough. He's like, he's not listening, right? Because it's so easy, right? It's so easy for us to listen to Jesus. We, we get it down the very first time, every time. Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works of themselves so we get our heart location right we get our eyes up on the way but our feet still need to move jesus says you need to see what's going on all right we have to have a guide who's directing our foot footwork he says don't you believe i'm in the father and the father is in me and then jesus says where do you think my authority comes from Where do you think my authority comes from? Where do you think the way, the path, the energy, the power in order for you to move, where do you think that comes from? 
Do you think it comes from me? Or do you think it comes from the Father? Now, I'm not going to get into all the theology that's packed in here. And John packs a lot of doctrine in this passage. I just want to talk about this entirely from, in terms of our journey as believers. We either believe that Jesus is, the, is in the Father. We either believe that to see Jesus is to see God, to know His words, to obey His commands is to obey God. Or we are looking at the wrong Jesus. We are looking at the wrong path. You say, well, you know, I was reading this book and it talked about Jesus and so it must be good. No. There are many false Christs. They exist. They have the right labels. They're published by the right houses. They're proclaimed by people that lead things they call churches. But that doesn't mean that they're really talking about Jesus. Um, Who's our guide on the path? Whose authority dictates how we live? Because you know what? You can say, I'm going to put my heart, I'm going to set my heart on Christ. I'm not going to be troubled. You can say, "I'm I'm going to find the way. And I look at Jesus, I say, That's, Jesus is the way, man. This Jesus thing is the right thing. So I'm just going to stand here, or I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm going to say that I'm following Jesus. If Jesus is the Lord of your salvation he's the lord of your every day if he is the lord of the eternal he is the lord of the morning and the evening and it is not enough for us to say we are christians and we follow jesus and and all those things it is not enough for us to have our bibles and and to you know we 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 you know blow the dust off of it and bring it on Sunday. I know for most people now your Bible is in your phone and so it gets used way more than when it was in print. Um, the phone, not the Bible necessarily. Um, we, we have all these different things going on and we, we, we say it and, and we communicate it and we even try really, really hard. Verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Do you know Jesus well enough? Do you know Jesus well enough not to ask in his name for something he would not ask for? I've seen people take this verse and say, well, the Bible says that whatever I ask, God will give. Give that a shot. 
you're asking for something contrary to, to God's authority. If you get it, you did not get it from him. Dear God, please bring me a more attractive wife than the one I've got. In Jesus' name, amen. Dear God, please transmogrify this Big Mac into all the nutrients I need for the coming day. (laughs) Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. The reality is our power to walk, to to find our heart location, to find our path, to follow our guide, it starts with our harmony with Christ. Because when we're in harmony with Christ, Christ is in harmony with God. How many of you played in an orchestra at some point in your life? I think only Tom, right? Tom, what instrument does the orchestra tune to? Do you remember? The oboe. The oboe is a perfect B, if I'm not mistaken. And everybody tunes off of that one instrument. Because if everybody tunes their instrument to their own liking, it's chaos. Can you imagine John Williams, since I'm already talking about Star Wars, John Williams' score for Star Wars, if everybody tuned to their own pitch. What a cacophony. Cacophony, by the way, is just a word for bad music. What? It's Greek. It's Greek. Kakos, evil. Phonos, sound. It's an evil sound. That's actually what cacophony means. Um, our, our power as Christians to set our hearts on Christ, to follow him, to do the difficult work of taking the steps on the way that he clears for us begins with our harmony with him. In the Eastern church, they use the word synergos, synergy. That my energy and my works must come into uh, a relationship with the works of the Holy Spirit and Christ. That's the only way I can really know what God has called me to do. Make no mistake about it. To live as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, without Jesus physically present, is hard work. That's why Jesus says that you will do greater works than I have done once I have gone to the Father. Because you know how easy it is to follow Jesus when Jesus is right there to tell you you're doing something wrong? I imagine it was pretty easy. Peter, stop. Huh? Peter, no. None of us have ever had this relationship with our kids, right? Please don't do that. I'm not doing it. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Don't eat that cookie. I'm not eating it. And yet, with Christ physically absent, how much harder must it have been for the disciples to follow him? Jesus asks them to do something very hard. And if there's one big idea this morning, it is this. If you are struggling to follow Christ, let me give you a little bit of assurance. You are not the only one. 
to follow Christ is hard. That is why in the next set of verses, we're going to find out that Jesus actually sends the third person of the Trinity to be the comforter, the parakletos, the, the, the come-alongsider for Christians because we can't do it on our own. We can't put our heart in the present future on our own. We can't see what Christ has called us to be on our own. We can't understand the meaning of the way, the truth, and the life on our own. We need the Spirit of God, we need the Word of God, and we need the people of God. That's why we journey together. That's why it's so important that as believers, we engage We engage with the scriptures. We engage with the spirit of God. We engage believing that when we find that harmony, that synergy, that unity, that communion with Christ, we will have the power to do what we're called to do. We cannot simply appropriate the name of Christ. We have a responsibility to know Him. To know Him. To know ourselves in light of who He is. You say, but I love Him. Isn't that enough? Is it enough to love human beings? but not know them. Um, how many of you remember the first time, guys, I'm talking to guys here. The first time you saw your wife without date makeup. She wasn't all gussied up and pretty. Maybe for some of you it was before you were married. Um, my wife and I, we got married and we went to San Diego for a honeymoon and it was the first time that we had seen each other in the morning. Poor girl was terrified. <laughs> we were young. We were stupid. Um, I'm not young anymore. <laughs> or I wouldn't have started this story. But the reality is it's not enough to just love. We have to know. We can't just love God on, at church on Sunday, love God and, and do our devotions, love God and pray when we're asked to pray, love God and do what needs to be done. It's not enough to just love and do. We have to know. My wife and I, I mentioned this, we've been married now, in February will be 24 years. We're trying to figure out what to do with our 25th anniversary. Um, We're not entirely sure. Because we got married in February, because somebody was in a hurry. (laughs) And I pulled some old pictures of us um, back in the day. And I realized that the person that I was looking at in those pictures, I did not know as well as the person I know now. Because to love, to put your heart out, to walk the path, you have to know. 
And you have to know Christ. Let me encourage you to just do this. Get to know the one you've trusted with your eternal faith and hope. Get to know the good and the bad of your relationship to him. There's no bad in Christ, but we take some of the things he does wrong. See the darkness and the crucifixion and all that that goes on. See the glory and the beauty. Get to know him. Know him better every day. Because that's the only way you're going to have the power to get through. It's the only way your heart is going to be truly present. It is my longing. It is my hope. That when I breathe my last breath, the difference between me living here and me in the presence of my eternal Lord will not be a shock to me. That I will know Him in my life well enough that when I am in His presence, He does not, I am not surprised by who He is. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Jesus, help us to know you. Not the version of you that we create for ourselves, but to truly know you. We believe or say we believe that you are present here. Your spirit is at work in us. But to know you, we have to put in the effort. And it is a hard job. We want to do more than just express emotion. We want to do more than stay in the same place. We want to know you and in knowing you, know your will and your desires for us. Know where to place our heart and where to place our eyes and how to walk and how to be your people. Help us to know you not to manufacture a version of you that we can know easily, but to take on the incredibly difficult task of knowing you as you truly are.